Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. Today we're discussing Alan Watt's 1960 essay, This Is It, from a book of essays of the same name. In this essay, he discusses the idea of cosmic consciousness or selflessness that's central to a lot of Zen Buddhist teachings and how that's intersected with his own life. this essay provided a really powerful way of looking at the world and dealing with all this shit that's going on right now mm. because he he argues that no matter how bad shit is or how wrong things seem to be going it's always exactly as it should be and as, as it will always be and that there's no deviating from that and that the way it is is inherently beautiful mm yeah yes yeah, it's, it's something really relaxing and calming to have this perspective that encompasses all of reality and says it's all good yeah yeah even if and even if you feel like it isn't that's part of it being the way it is because that includes your your mental and emotional states and and all of that it's all it's all inclusive yeah <laughs> Alan Watts has a, a talk he does where he says that what if you could dream anything for forever and at first you'd dream all the fun epic things and but eventually you'd get bored of that and you'd want something with a little bit more spice something where there's maybe more thrill because you know that you're at risk or, or you don't know that you're safe and so you mm -hmm. dream something where where you don't know you're safe and eventually you dream every sort of convolution and incorporate the darkness as well as the light uh, until eventually you'll dream the experience of your life right now. Yeah, exactly as it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, this, this is like hypothetically if you could just transport yourself into exactly the situation you wanted to transport yourself well, into. Well, hypothetically, if you could just dream about anything, no limits. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it isn't that kind of close to the idea of if you had an eternal life, you would, where everything was, you know, good all the time, that you would get bored with that pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Which I'm, I'm, I'm actually not so sure about. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think, I mean, we have this idea, um, we have this idea that, you know, at some point we'll, we'll reach a point where we will have gone too far in making our lives better and that it'll just be boring. Mm. Uh, there's some, there's some t truth to that, but, uh, you could also look at how far we've come since, you know, you know pre-civilization up through, you know, the middle ages and, and life just being really, really sucky for most people and short and brutal. Mm. <laughs> and that we've come so far and there's, it seems, it seems weird to say that we should stop exactly where we are right now, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just because, because we're here, like it seems a little arbitrary. Mm. 
Well, there's there's one thing is that he brings in this quote by Dostoevsky from The Possessed. Right. Um, or I'll just go ahead and read it. Man is unhappy because he doesn't know he's happy. It's only that. That's all. That's all. If anyone finds out, he'll become happy at once. That minute. It's all good. I discovered it all of a sudden. Do you want to take the other voice? And if anyone dies of hunger, and if anyone insults and outrages the little girl, is that good? Yes. And if anyone blows his brains out for the baby, that's good too. And if anyone doesn't, that's good too. It's all good. All. It's good for all those who know that it's all good. If they knew that it was good for them, it would be good for them. But as long as they don't know it's good for them, it would be bad for them. That's the whole idea, the whole of it. They're bad because they don't know they're good. When they find out, they won't outrage a little girl. They'll be... They'll find out that they're good, and they'll all become good, every one of them. Yeah, it makes me think a lot of this thing people will talk about in relation to mindfulness, where you can notice that all of your emotional states are somewhat dependent on you continuing to think about whatever it is that's bothering mm. you and continuing to, to kind of exacerbate themselves uh, on their yeah, own. Yeah, so true. Um, and yeah, if, if you... If you practice it, you can you can start to be able to, if not if you're not you know turn on a dime and completely, uh, become completely calm and at peace. You can at least notice it for a second mm. that it's possible to make all that stuff start to just disappear and it and it seems and it can seem kind of like an illusion that it was that it was there at all and that you can bring yourself back to this kind of neutral state of of well-being have you had an experience of that personally yeah i mean i mean like i mean pretty much any time I, I get i find myself like getting upset now like i mean i, I try to do something like that mm. you know and i mean and like i said like it's usually only for like a few seconds or something mm. um and then whatever it is kind of comes rushing back but but it's definitely there cool I guess, and I, I guess what happens is that I just become very aware of like the, the crazy fucked up, uh, state of my mind and just that there's all these like thoughts kind of like racing around and like causing each other and mm. in a very, uh, haphazard way. Do you feel like that little point of pose gives you m more order or helps to organize your mind? Maybe. I mean, honestly, I don't know if if I'm good enough at, at conjuring it to make it do that much. Mm. <laughs> I mean, usually it's like, Oh, there it is. Well, I can't, I can't sustain it. So <laughs> that kind of like, I feel spir spirals I've, into like, I've, guilt, I've had guilt that sometimes. problem before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you can only do so much. Mm. Um, yeah um but i have to i have to believe that those people who you know go on you know who've done hours and hours of silent meditation and and 
gone to retreats and stuff and, and dedicate their lives to to the study of this kind of thing can pretty reliably uh, do it a lot better. Mm. Um, what's really fascinating to me about this quote from Dostoevsky is the very end of it where he says, when they find out, they won't outrage a little girl. So, like what you're saying, like, the moment that you realize it's all good, that doesn't mean that you're going to continue to do what is bad. Because when you realize it's good and you're good, you're going to behave good. Yeah, and everyone you interact with is can kind of be seen as one system that's composed of composed of parts, but they're all kind of inseparable and interlinked. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you, if you can get your mind to some kind of place where you see everything is good, inherently good, you're going to hopefully project that out to the people that you interact with. And it'll be like a positive chain reaction. I definitely believe that's an, a, a true thing that happens. So this gets to an interesting question. Uh, the concept of good and evil, and in what context does that make sense, and in what context does it not? Yeah, yeah, actually, I mean, this is maybe one of my, uh, one of the things I'd object to, or just want to um, maybe critique a yeah. little bit. He's talking about, like, like in nature, like, you know, animals killing each other and stuff, as, as that being, like... Um, part of the good um so he says the experience makes it perfectly clear that the whole universe is through and through the playing of love in every shade of the word's use from animal lust to divine charity somehow this includes even the holocaust of the biological world where every creature lives by feeding on others our usual picture of this world is reversed so that every victim is seen as an offering itself in sacrifice mm. There's definitely there's definitely beauty beauty there's definitely beauty to that idea, mm. but my my mind I'm just so kind of taken away by the idea that that there's nothing about biology or evolution that's optimal or that's uh, quote unquote right or the way it should be. Mm. I mean, it, it's possible it's it's the only way it could be, but it still is creating a fuck ton of suffering and pain uh but if it's the only way it could be then doesn't that mean that it's the way it should be i guess that's i guess that's the whole question because <laughs> like compared to what compared to non-existence right yeah that's what's so interesting about existence from this perspective that alan watts encompasses yeah. so much is that the the footing that existence is upon is based on is absolute nothingness right you have you have existence and where is that existence where does it come from Wait, like you you can you can kind of trace a line back like say oh this form of existence was birthed from this other thing and biological birth and all that stuff but at a certain point it doesn't 
it's not based on anything. It's just there. It just happens. Yeah, I mean, I guess where my mind goes is is that at some point it's possible we could have some kind of utopia virtual reality where, you know, it's there's there's no need for for beings to, to die or suffer. But then at that point, that there would be no like biological beings beings at all. Mm. So you have to. I mean, yeah, I don't. I don't I mean, yeah, I'm little. I'm literally imagining like us turning the entire planet into like a big computer, and you know, just with solar panels or <laughs> or nuclear fusion or something, and just like. <laughs> so, like, that that that's that's definitely an optimization, and let's let's say for the sake of argument that that's the best thing we could do to create the the best world for everyone, but I, I don't think it suffices to eliminate suffering because it's still uh, an environment of limited resources and so at a certain point there aren't going to be enough resources to support everyone if everyone is continually growing and reproducing well i mean if if everyone's in the in the virtual reality then there's not really any mm. um the 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 problem of of reproducing and growing and and not having enough resources would start to disappear. Well, I think it would just transmute because no longer will we have to worry about individuals reproducing, but what about ideas and the the more ideas you have, the more you grow as a species that the greater your knowledge base becomes and at a a certain point you're going to run out of storage space if you have a confined environment like that. I guess so. I mean, although if we're at that point where the whole planet is a computer, I, I assume we have nanotechnology and can, <laughs> you know, get asteroids and turn them into more, <laughs> more computers <laughs> mm. or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so what, what, what you're doing there is, you're breaking out of the confines that were originally presupposed. And so your existence, this, this utopia that's going outside the planet and incorporating other things that's growing out onto, uh, infinite, uh, an, an infinite scale, right? Potentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so living on a infinite scale, you don't have that problem where there's a limited resources ergo you don't have evil you don't have things that are bad assuming that you can optimize for the best situation right yeah i mean yeah if you if you accept that most of the reason for evil in the world is just scarcity mm -hmm. and well quote-unquote evil is scarcity and yeah just competition for resources yeah. and and actually th um, this is something i'd like to talk about a little bit more because i think that's exactly what evil means so ellen watts says in a somewhat similar way this strange opening of vision does not permit attention to remain focused narrowly upon the details of evil they become subordinate to the all-pervading intelligence and beauty of the total design so what he's saying is that it's impossible to have an experience of evil if you are embracing this state of cosmic consciousness of, of infinite resources. 
Mm-hmm. What, what page is that on? T- very last sentence of twenty-seven, leading on to twenty-eight. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if he convinces me <laughs> of of mm. that. Because um, he, he he goes on, yeah. The, um, such insight has not the slightest connection with shallow optimism, nor with grasping the meaning of the universe in terms of some neat philosophical simplification. Beside it, all philosophical opinions and disputations sound like somewhat sophisticated versions of children <laughs> yelling back and forth. Tis, tisn't, tis, tis, tis. tisn't. <laughs> um, I, I get his, I get his point. Um, but he, he, I don't know. He, he, this is just kind of the way he writes. But, um, saying that it doesn't permit attention to remain focused narrowly upon the details of evil. Like who's like, how does mm. it, how does it not permit? Well, let me talk about that because I actually have a uh, an idea about that. So you could say that from a finite perspective, there's a hierarchy of actions from good to bad that you can do, right? What what will create mm-hmm. the most consciousness given the finite resources? How how do you optimize the world for the best world, right? Yeah. Yeah, not not just the most consciousness, but the most like beneficial. Uh, don't want to use the word wholesome, but <laughs> something like wholesome. Sure. Consciousness. Anyway, um, <laughs> so within this context of a finite world, there is such a concept as evil or bad that is is a valuable concept, right? There are things that are not desirable to achieving the goal of optimization. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, within a finite structure, uh, rather a, a finite perspective of, of vision, that it is impossible to maintain a perspective... Or, sorry, let me say again. Um from that finite perspective you can have a concept of evil right yeah so then if you have an experience of what he calls cosmic consciousness of having an experience of something greater than yourself experiencing the world through your perspective then that that's sort of like a embodying the entire universe and understanding yourself as as that entire universe, right? And mm-hmm. so, so that's kind of an infinite time scale, or an infinite scale, I should say. So on this infinite scale, there is no hierarchy of actions that will create a better or worse situation because eventually everything will happen. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. And that, I mean, that makes me think of the whole free will thing, mm. because if every, yeah, if, if everything is going to happen and any, any pain or suffering is just part of the, the whole that includes all the pain and suffering, but also all of the, the joy and love, um, that it's all one entity mm. in some, in some way, and that it's, it's all inseparable from the rest of itself yeah um and then it can it can only be that mm-hmm. way so yeah I, I take that point cool. um so 
that time that we did acid with Aiden, uh, <laughs> I had an experience of thinking that I could do anything. I could, I could kill someone right now, and I might, I might kill someone, and that would be okay. That would be good because everything is going to eventually happen, and so. Anything I do is just an expression of this symphony of life that we're all experiencing. Yeah, <laughs> I, think you, I think you've told me that before. It's a little, <laughs> little concerning. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all still here. Well, somehow, <laughs> despite having um, urges to commit what in my sober mind would be considered an atrocity... <laughs> I never did so. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why. Um, perhaps there was some scrap of me that in the background that didn't see it the same way. Or perhaps it has to do with what Dostoevsky says, that when you see it all and it's all good, even the violent stuff and the horrible stuff is all good, then you will be good. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can say that for everyone, though, can you? Tell me more. Why not? Well, I mean, there are people who give in to those, those desires. Do they see it as good, though? I mean, well, it depends Depends on the situation, mm. I think. I mean, if, it, if it's someone who's um, who feels like they're somehow, like, giving someone their just desserts or, you know, enacting vengeance or something in some way in their head, then I would say they probably feel like they're doing good. Mm. Um, if it's someone who's just kind of chemically imbalanced and, and has their perception of reality warped, um, mm. through drugs or otherwise, then I'd say they probably would see it as, as good. Um, I, I'm not necessarily convinced, but that, it, that does seem possible to me. Um, there was someone I knew who romanticized ideas of degeneracy as being good and beautiful, and he really seemed to embrace it. And for me, had me had me convinced for a while that he really felt as much. And he would act while I don't think he ever did anything truly immoral. He he would act degenerate. Um, and self-destructively and mm -hmm. it, it was sort of like this pretense of this is all good this is what I want but what I came to understand over time was that it actually had more to do with a sort of self-punitive impulse where he felt as though he was not worthy of existing in this world with these people and so he would degrade himself in order to in order to punish himself yeah yeah i, I could see that i mean that, that seems like a a pretty common way for human psychology to work where we yeah, I mean, we think we want one thing, and actually, we're satisfying some other desire that that's that's deeper. Yeah, and that might have nothing to do with what's good, right? 
<laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, the other side of it is that, that I mean, maybe this is kind of what Alan Watts is getting at, but the idea of good and evil is is somewhat of a human construction in the end. Yeah. Well, yeah, that would make sense because humans exist on a finite scale, and so it would make sense to have a concept of evil. Yeah, I mean, also just that there's a, there's like it's like a bifurcation with a with a clean line. Like that's also. What do you mean? Well, I mean, like, uh, I mean, obviously there are actions that are completely evil, and there are actions that are completely good, but there are a lot that are in like a gray area. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's it's kind of the whole, um, like you know, for example, by by like eating meat or or dairy, are you par- participating in this global, um, this uh, if you're participating in something like global agriculture or you know global supply chains that involve uh very low paid factory workers or something like that is, is buying, is buying those clothes or buying, you know, that those animal products, is that evil or is it, is it ambiguous Mm. or is it? Yeah. It's a tricky question because on one hand it's absolutely evil. You are the thing that's supporting and influence and creating that, that system. But on the other hand, it's such a large system that you're such a small part of that your opting out alone will have absolutely no impact on the greater system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or, you know, kind of to touch back on what we were talking about in an early episode, like is, is, uh, choosing to direct your time, and resources in a certain way can that be evil like if if you're choosing to just you know go make a bunch of money on the stock market mm. is that is that neutral or is that evil because you could be using that potential for something else huh. <laughs> i don't have a clear answer for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah i think i think that's kind of the point though is that there's there's yeah there's there's no clear line really mm. There are things that are obviously one way or the other way, but there's no. Yeah, right. There's there's, there's no like a hierarchy situation. of choices, and some of them are more clearly good, and some of them are maybe more in the middle. I feel like this also kind of connects to um, what he's talking about uh, when he says, obviously, then there is a proper place for preachers and other technical advisors in the disciplines of human betterment but the limits within which such improvements may be made are small in comparison with the vast aspects of our nature and our circumstances, which remain the same and which will be very difficult to improve, even if it were desirable to do so. I'm saying therefore that the, that while there is a place for bettering oneself and others, solving problems and coping with situations is by no means the only, or even the chief business of life, nor is it the principal work of philosophy. Hmm. Which I, I would I would see see is connected to the the problem of of reducing evil in the world, that if if you're, you know, constantly trying to. To you know get rid of suffering and. And cut out all the unpleasant parts, that you're kind of, missing the point. 
because that's kind of a it's it's only it's only like a, a um you're you're, you're only going to get so far uh-huh, definitely <laughs> you know um although again like i i feel like with very advanced technology that could start to not be <laughs> as true <laughs> everything comes to ai <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> hmm. have you ever had the experience of thinking that the entire world as it is now imperfect imperfect and unfinished is you can think of it as all fetal material that is building towards some greater form of consciousness that is emerging and burgeoning and or will be but right now it's not there yet definitely yeah i mean I mean, not not to keep bringing it back to technology, but we're we're connected in a way now that's unlike any other time in in human history, and 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 that on its own is some some kind of collective experience that is, I think, not more meaningful necessarily, but it's we are it it's clear we're working towards something that's a more like a more connected society that's going to have. Um, yeah, potentially, potentially, a much greater significance than any of us could on our own. Mm, yeah, and that isn't that kind of indistinguishable from our own biological systems. If you look on a micro scale, you look at the different cells, and they're all optimized in different ways and forming into this greater structure. But they're, they're that way so that as a whole, they all individually have greater chances of survival and that this biological system that they accumulate into has happened just by cells that were completely unique, separate individuals working together. Totally, yeah, and... and like none of our brains evolved in isolation, right? They all, they all evolved around other brains interacting with other brains. Mm. And there's, there's really no other, no other way for it to be. Um, right. I mean, we, we couldn't have just evolved, you know, uh, you know, one, one singular brain at a time interacting with this environment that like reproduces a new brain. <laughs> Which is so wild, because isn't that kind of what we're trying to do with AI? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's it makes sense to really compare it to evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, that, so, that's I mean, the like thing. Are... It's, it's like with our own development, it was a long iterative process. Like, like mm-hmm. you said, it wasn't just one group of cells banding together to form a fully complete human brain it, mm-hmm. it, it happened through many iterations and what we're trying to do is with with birthing uh, artificial super intelligence is more akin to trying to put it all together with just the one try well, yeah, I mean, there there are people who are working on like 
uh, genetic algorithms that you know reproduce themselves and mm. introduce little you know little random mutations and then they see which one performs the best and then you know they call the rest oh, wow. and yeah and then there there are also um, people who are working on uh, AI systems that have uh, like within them mul multiple smaller little agents and um, you know arranged in different ways and and uh, with different hierarchies of of control and competence, I guess. Uh -huh. Yeah, you were talking <laughs> about that in the AI yeah. episode. Yeah, um, and I think you know, even if our even if our brains you know evolved in uh, you know in in association with other brains, I mean, what we're, what we're trying to do now is is reproduce the effect without necessarily reproducing the the whole structure of the brain because we have this thing called intelligence that we still can't quite put our finger on mm. as far as defining but we know it has something to do with problem solving and um and perception and creative thinking mm. I'm trying to find it there's the part where he talks about like different people having different uh like completely opposite perceptions of this cosmic consciousness thing. Yeah. Where he talks really about how some person could feel like they were completely destroyed and diminished and that their sense of identity was erased. And whereas someone else could feel that they were the whole universe. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and some people could think that they knew everything. And some, <laughs> some people could say that they knew nothing, uh -huh. <laughs> which I tried to say like, that's, that was definitely my experience uh, during that that acid trip you described with, <laughs> with Aiden, where <laughs> I was completely pulled over by the the feeling that I just knew nothing, mm -hmm. and nothing I thought <laughs> I knew was like actually <laughs> actually true. But mm. yeah, it's it's it just it's interesting because it it kind of maybe implies that there's something inherently not wrong, but inherently misguided about how the human mind looks at those kinds of experiences. If it's capable of coming to like such opposite conclusions hmm. that there's, there's some other like third thing that's that basically it's what he's talking about that, that it is what it is. Yeah. The, yeah, th th that that was something else that was striking about this essay. He talks about um, directionlessness, um, not planning for the future, not aiming for a particular goal, but that existence is more like just a playing out and exploration. Yeah, he, he says it's he says it's more like like dance or music than something like math or philosophy yeah although he also like the, says the point... that philosophy uh serves more as art than anything else oh right right <laughs> <laughs> yeah he likes to play games doesn't he yeah <laughs> <laughs> so do you do you know maybe you can explain a little bit about what his relationship with zen buddhism was uh, i don't know in well, maybe I'll just say 
I know that he has he studied it extensively and that he interpreted and translated it into a way that Western audiences could relate to. Mm-hmm. And he definitely, it's it's clear that it was a major, if not the major part of his life. Yeah, and I think Zen also has a lot to do with, with contradictions, mm. right? And with with there, there not being a, an answer and that you just kind of have to sit with the, you know, sit with the, the contradiction and, uh, yeah. And that's, that's the, that's, that's the whole project. Yeah. It's that duality of questions and answers and that maybe arriving on a question makes just as much sense as arriving on an answer. Yeah. Because in the end there's not really any answer or like a completely satisfying answer that we could, we're going to be able to find mm-hmm. for, for any of these like big, big, deep questions. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're very mature in this podcast. Yeah. It's <laughs> Sophisticated humor. It's one of our strengths. <laughs> so you kind of talked about um you're doing acid a little bit but is there like any other time where you felt like you experienced something like cosmic consciousness or or a sense that like everything was exactly as it should be it's interesting i haven't had it in a transcendental sense as he describes except for during psychedelic experiences now i know that when people talk about having a a cosmic consciousness experience that they, they say that psychedelic experiences pale in comparison or don't quite get there mm-hmm. I, I don't know if i i mean i'm sure that's true for for them but for me the experiences that i had were so tangible and real that I I don't doubt for a second that they're every bit as potent as what these people are describing, if not as long-lasting. Yeah, I think the thing is 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 more like the durability of the experience, mm. because I I think a lot of the time with with psychedelics, it's it's hard to remember exactly what it felt like, or at least for me, it mm. is. Or, and I think I think if you if you arrive at these experiences through through another way that's more gradual, that it's easier to to maintain them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, one thing though that is unusual ab- about my experience with psychedelics is that it seems to me that I was able to hold on to the experiences far better than people generally do Mm -hmm. things that were suddenly made apparent to me huge revelations I was able at the time to put them into words and that that stuck with me and influenced my thought for years Mm -hmm. afterward Mm -hmm. yeah and I guess I feel I feel the same way um but yeah being able to, to bring something back that 
that resonates with you and and you you know you think about over and over and keep keep kind of developing um but as, as far as like that's all that's all kind of like intellectual right that's all kind of i mean it's it's not that it's not um no visceral but it, it's 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 not the same as as being in that state i don't know i think it does extend to the experiential you know gut feeling aspect of it as well i think that once being able to embrace that experience as being guided through the psychedelics i've also been able to retain that mindset and revisit it often if not continually for very very long periods afterward years Mm -hmm. yeah no i don't don't doubt that i mean i I feel kind of kind of similar similar ways Mm. um yeah i just yeah, I guess ne- neither of us really know <laughs> what's what's on the other side of of, of yeah ha- having one of the, those experiences, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just purely purely sober. One thing that is important for my understanding is to recognize that even if you have such an experience as guided through a, a psychedelic substance that it's the experience, it's the mindset that creates the experience and that that mindset is separate from the substance itself. Yeah, and in the end, you, your your brain could do that same thing without the drug. It's yeah. just that you're, you're, you're being shown that it, it's that, that state of mind is there exactly. for you. And for me with my experiences with drugs, it's been important to approach it with that mindset, with saying that what I'm doing here is I'm learning about a, uh, a mind state that I want to be able to reproduce in the future without the drug. I think that trips a lot of people up, especially people who go back again and again to the drug looking for something deeper looking for that same thing that they got the first time and mm-hmm. that i think is a huge stumbling block for people mm-hmm. yeah i'd say i i probably have a little bit, bit of that complex going on just because <laughs> i remember i remember the first time I, I thought i knew what i was getting myself into and i thought i was approaching it like in a pretty like serious way um like i wasn't expecting like a, a party or anything mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but but still it just it just managed to just pull me over and um yeah even if even since i've gone back a few times to that substance like nothing it nothing has come close to that first that first time mm-hmm. where i just felt like yeah i just hit by a freight train or something <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah but you like it too. <laughs> I mean, at the time, fair enough. Gosh, yeah. Do Do you ever feel like you you have this experience that you had that was so formative, and you have like a concept of it in your mind, but when you go back and explore it and think about it. Uh, or talk about it and you'll you'll like invariably remember something that 
was huge and formative and so much that experience that you had completely forgotten about. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> over and over again. Like like every time. <laughs> yeah. That time I was just you... re-experiencing the absolute devastation I felt towards the end of my first acid trip. It's like like I remember asking my friend, like, what now, you know, what now, now that this is revealed to me? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this one guy said, now you live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I remember um, when I and our, our mutual friend, Alex White, um, did shrooms together for the first time for both of us um i remember i i cried at least like two or three times i think my granddad had just passed away mm -hmm. and um and um yeah and that, that was actually the first time that i had, had music had made me cry just because it was so beautiful and I, not because of any like extra musical association mm -hmm. That it was like maybe think of someone or or you know maybe think of a memory or something it was just oh my god that's such a just like beautiful crystallization of the human experience hmm yeah <laughs> yeah that yeah i feel like that kind of opened the door for me in some way hmm. do you feel that you can now access that appreciation of music to any degree on your own yeah i mean yeah i mean it's still pretty rare um but so that, that first time was um it was the end of uh bonnie Vera's album uh 22 a million the last the last song on that album i think mm. um so it got me and then the, <laughs> the the time i remember after that i was seeing bernstein's mass at the long center here um and it was the year that it was like the 100th anniversary of his uh birth i think and in the middle of that, it's just like, it's basically like an orgy is what's happening on, on, <laughs> you know, on stage. But it's like, th there's like four choirs and like a bunch of dancers and like, uh, and it's just so like, uh, it was just so like breathtaking and overwhelming and just like, I can't believe one person had all this in their head and they, you know, and now it's being realized. It was, it was that kind of feeling. Wow. Like, like this, this person, yeah, this, this person felt all that. And actually that's, um, uh, the last time Aiden and I did acid together, we listened to, um, Les Espaces Acoustiques by Gerard Grisey. And, uh, I remember we were talking about how music is kind of like condensed experience. Um, mm. because if, if, if someone takes, you know, the time over several years or in that case like six years to write that whole piece it's in some sense it's condensing their life down into that mm. like six years down into you know an hour and a half or two two hours or whatever and the, the power of that is is pretty incredible um because wow. it's just it's kind of expressing in, in some abstract way expressing what it's like to be alive as that person for that length of time definitely I've often considered that compositions are like castings of a person's soul. Yeah. 
yeah, and it's funny because I fully acknowledge too that that creation isn't the most intentional of of acts. Like a lot of it is just kind of hunting around in the dark and and kind of trying things out and and uh, you know stumbling into things. But at the same time, it's yeah, something about you is is collected there and kind of concentrated. Mm-hmm. Something so powerful about Alan Watts's writing style for me is there's something about it where I'll start reading and maybe get about a paragraph in maybe a couple pages and something he'll say will just make my head spin because it's such a big idea that seems so true to me and I I won't be able to get any further in the book because I'll have to stop and think about it. (laughs) Yeah, I, I ended up rereading a lot of things just because. I, <laughs> <laughs> I get to the end of the paragraph and and realize what he was saying was like so profound, and that I missed the beginning of it somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just to go back and, <laughs> and like make sure I actually you know fully understood where he was coming from. Yeah, it's subtle stuff. I thought he was it was interesting what he was saying about the way Christianity and the way of and Christian thinking of have influenced people so much as far as, um, you know, God being separate from his creation and God being, you know, separate from, from us. Mm. And that, uh, I mean, obviously there's, especially now there's a lot of Christians who would be totally on board with that, but especially back when he was writing. And I think for a lot of people still today, like, um, yeah. Christianity and probably like most monotheistic religions uh, imply some kind of separateness of mm. of creator and and uh, and creation and 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 human. Yeah, if if you say God and refer to him as a him or as an it or as a her, it's personifying it as an external de- deity. Yeah, and that that can just be so counter to to a healthy way of living and like interacting with your, with your environment. I I agree that it can be counter. I 100% agree. I don't think it's always, I think that it sure. can serve a very valuable purpose for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I'm brought to the image of a person praying. And again, this actually ties back into experiences with psychedelics of of having this incredible force bowl over you that you you can't Mm -hmm. cope with it's too much and it's Mm -hmm. there's something really comforting about getting down on your knees resting your head down on your hands you know just Mm -hmm. that form of obeisance that making yourself humble before this majesty is something very valuable in that mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i i remember so a little bit of background on me my, my mom's a minister ordained in uh united church of christ and so I, I grew up going to church to a methodist church like every sunday and somewhere in high school i started to kind of question it and back away from mm-hmm. it I think pretty solidly by like my, my junior senior year of, of high school, I was like, I was going just cause you know, we were going as a family, but like 
um, I basically thought all of it was just not true and and not and like kind of productive and stuff. And then, um, yeah, the first time I did psychedelics, it kind of, along with making me unsure of everything that I knew, it, it made me think that there might be something to all that. Mm. And it kind of, put, it pushed me down a path of, at first, seeing the, the merit in religions like Christianity. Um, and I remember right after that was when I, I went to Europe for the first time and I, I was going to all these like churches yeah. and cathedrals with like the, the stained glass and stuff. It's like, wow, this is like that same territory mm-hmm. of, of just religious uh, like rapture and, and just overwhelmingly aesthetic beauty. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is like the same, this is it. It's it's the same ballpark. No, not this is it, but but but, but we're we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just coming from from two different directions. It it's like what Alan Watts talks about. So he says, the terms in which a man interprets this experience are naturally drawn from the religious, from the religious and philosophical ideas of his culture, and their differences often conceal its basic identity. As water seeks the course of least resistance, so the emotions clothe themselves in the symbols that lie most readily to hand, and the association is so swift and automatic that the symbol may appear to be the very heart of the experience. Clarity, the disappearance of problems, suggests light, and in moments of such acute clarity, there may be the physical sensation of light penetrating everything. To a theist, this will naturally seem to be a glimpse of the presence of God, as in the celebrated testimony of Pascal. Uh, I, I won't quote it, but we'll cut it off before I say that last addendum. Yeah. No, that, that was totally my experience. And I think, yeah, at that first that first time I did psychedelics, I, I, I don't think I really had any kind of philosophical groundwork in my brain to think about that stuff. So it was the only, the only thing I could compare it to is some kind of religious thing. Mm. But even, you know, even, even philosophy doesn't quite, you know, quite get up at the heart of it. How do you mean? I mean, like it's, it's the thing where you can, you can say words that point to things and you can describe things, but you can't actually get at the essence of what something is or the essence of an experience. Yeah. Cool. The idea he, he talks about, um, he talks about Korzybski's law of non-identity that whatever you say a thing is, it isn't. And he gives the example that you can't drink the word water. Yeah. He's just basically like that. The, the words we have for things are like naming constellations. Hmm. They're just kind of apparent. Um, and also, I think he says this earlier that you can't really define a star without defining the darkness that surrounds the star. Because without the darkness, the star wouldn't be a distinct. The darkness is what hmm. gives the star the appearance appearance of being distinct. Yeah, definitely. That was a theme of that string quintet that I wrote in college from Fireflies to Thunderstorms. The the, oh, yeah. the light in both fireflies and thunderstorms 
needs a background of darkness in order to be able to draw the parallel between these two very separate identities. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. And yeah, if, if you didn't have a sense of scale and you were just observing, you know, one or the other, you wouldn't be able to distinguish mm. as much. <laughs> <laughs> Quite so. Yeah, so, so right before he says that thing about the, the star in the darkness, he says, if it becomes clear that our use of the lines and surfaces of nature to divide the world into units is only a matter of convenience, then all that I have called myself is actually inseparable from everything. This is exactly what one experiences in these extraordinary moments. It is not that the outlines and shapes which we call things and use to delineate things disappear into some sort of luminous void. It simply becomes obvious that though they may be used as divisions, they do not really divide. However much I may be impressed by the difference between a star and the dark space around it, I must not forget that I conceive the two only in relation to each other, and that this relation is inseparable. Wow. Ever the poet. Yeah, because I, I, I feel like I have this... Uh, I have this idea of like an intense psychedelic experience is literally like, you know, melting boundaries and stuff, but it's, it's like the boundaries are still there, you know, mm. it's, it's that they, they, they don't have any significance. Yeah. Yeah. They only have a significance on the finite scale and your experience at that time is on an infinite scale so that the delineations don't seem to have any importance. Hmm. Well, what do you yeah what do you, what do you mean by that well i think that it's possible to have an experience within both an infinite scale where there are no limitations to how how far on it can go and mm. in finite terms where there's a limited amount of resources and furthermore baked into that is that Though each of those experiences is a valid experience uh, uh, from which you can derive value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like both true at the same time in a way. Yes, exactly. And so yeah. that even if you have that experience on the large scale of nothing I do matters, that's true, but at the same time, it's also true that on the finite scale, things do matter, and that there, there's there's no but about that. If if it matters, it matters. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and the only thing, the only way things can matter at all is is to human beings or conscious beings, and that necessarily has to be on this the scale that we're at right now. Yeah, exactly. Um. This, this ties into something from my journal that maybe we could talk about. Sure. So um, I just have a, a few bullet points that are supposed to lead into each other. So maybe we'll go through them one at a time and we can talk about them. So the first one is that you can have no experience, no existence without a perceiver. Yeah, so... I think within Buddhism, there there uh, is talked about that everything is literally made out of consciousness. Yes. That that yeah, everything you see is 
is consciousness that's what it is that's what it's constructed out of absolutely because that's that's the only thing it could be constructed out of ultimately <laughs> that's awesome yeah that's that's exactly yeah. what i believe and presuppose here yeah um, so the other thing i presuppose is that for perception to exist there has to be form that is a body to represent the conscious being neurons to represent ideas etc yeah, I mean, there's no way to have, as far as we know, there's no way to have consciousness without some kind of, like, physical system that's manifesting it. Yeah. Um, so then I go on to say that for some particular form to exist, any possible form must exist. This means that all manner of contortions and deviations from the sublime by necessity, oh, this means that all manner of contortions and dark deviations from the sublime. By necessity, for anything to exist, there must be the possibility for anything to exist. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally would stand behind that. I mean, especially if we're living in, in, um, in a universe that's line with the many roles interpretation of quantum mechanics that everything does exist like every possible mm. every possible possibility exists and you can't really get the yeah you can't just select certain parts of it that all all of it has to be kind of taken at once yeah definitely yeah or if the universe is infinite and the same thing yeah same thing applies everything <laughs> will be repeated yeah um so i go on to say any act or state of being, no matter how degenerate or abhorrent, therefore supports the only method by which anything can exist at all. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know about the word supports, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, it, it's like it. It's just like a necessary outcome of of everything existing. Yeah, I don't know if you could say that. It, yeah. Um. But but by existing in that form and and continuing to exist in that form, it's still a part of the playing. It, it it it's kind of another way of saying what Alan Watts was talking about, with uh, how see, seeing that everything is all good. Mm hmm. Yeah, because it's all all interconnected. Mm hmm. Now you had talked about how. You had mentioned that it's the existing for the consciousness by which value is ascribed, right? Mm hmm So, um, in order for perfection to exist, so too must imperfection. Yeah, I mean, I, I would maybe even just say that, that uh, yeah, perfection and imperfection don't really have much of a meaning if you're thinking in this way i mean like you could uh i mean you could say everything is perfect um or that like imperfection itself is perfect or i don't know like they <laughs> um, okay so while it is possible for perfection to exist it is infinitely more likely for something to take the form of something imperfect any expression of imperfection supports the existence of perfection because yeah because yeah, it's like a crapshoot <laughs> right like 
there's 10 fish in a barrel. I don't know. There's 10, there's 10 gumballs in the bag and nine of them are broken and one of them's perfect. You reach in there and uh, you're going to get one of them. And so whatever one you get, you, you at least had a chance of the perfect. Yeah, and I mean, even if there's... Because if, if the universe is really infinite, there would be an infinite number of imperfect things and an infinite number of perfect things. But I would have mm. to believe that it's one of those things where the infinity of imperfect things is larger than the infinity of perfect things because there's more ways for something to be imperfect than yeah. imperfect. Yeah, completely. But it's all it's all necessary. Awesome. I'm I'm glad you glad you see that. Um so perfection is infinitely unlikely to occur without imperfection. Yeah, yeah, you you anticipated the point. <laughs> <laughs> so, all of this holds true on an infinite scale where there is infinite time and space for things to resolve. It is possible for the illusion of finite space to exist as well. Within this finite space, it is possible to have an experience of value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, like we can only experience value on, on the finite scale that we're at. Yeah, exactly. Right. So in a finite space, there is a hierarchy of actions to optimize for the experiences of greatest value. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the, the more instances and variant forms by which value is perceived, the better, right? So, yeah, that, mm -hmm. so that's that's kind of um, tying back into what I was saying before. Mm -hmm. About good and evil. Yeah, because it's, yeah, we're, we're very likely dealing with like an infinity of, of different outcomes that all, they all kind of necessitate each other to exist at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, spot on. So, is this it? I think this is it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>